millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, as ever, I'm Peter Hart. I've not changed my name for ages, Gary. And, uh, and this is Gary Bain, who also hasn't changed his name. Hello, hello. And today we're doing Hague at War 1916. Uh, it, it's been, we've had, we've done loads of podcasts on Hague and I hope people will listen to them. Uh, uh, we did, uh, we started with his time as a, as a young, tender young lad. Uh, and the Sudan, we went on to his time as a staff officer and, and a, a bra- well, equivalent of a brigade commander in the Boer War. Uh, his role as a senior staff officer and, and, and role in rebuilding the British Army and forming the territorial force, all this uh, we did do. And then we followed his progress from 1914 and 1915. And now we've come to 1916. And what comes to your mind when I say the word 1916? Well, for for most, it's the uh, first day of the Battle of the Somme, and that's all they think of concerning Hague. All they can see, a stark image of men marching bravely to their futile deaths, cut down in their thousands by mass German machine guns. They envisage the unimaginative generalship of bewhiskered old idiots safe in their chateau headquarters far behind the lines. Now, where was Hague? He was in the chateau, far behind the lines. Well, of course he was. Where else could the GHQ, GHQ, the BF, be? Although he did also have an advanced GHQ at a place called uh, Boquain, I think, which was not far from Albert, behind Albert. So not too far away. But the, it, they're still behind the line. His main headquarters were to, uh, was a small chateau. It's, it's at Montreal, isn't it? And uh, and there's a big statue of him there, which uh, I know the uh, the Douglas Hague Fellowship has been uh, renovating, uh, a very interesting project. That, um, now, in his office... There was this huge match which uh, of the Western Front, which completely dominated uh, the office, and and an empty desk. Now that that betrayed like you and me, eh, Gary? Absolutely, that betrayed his policy of clearing each day's work as it came. I'm a, I'm a bugger for that myself. I'm exactly the same. Now, as the new commander of the BEF, and many people forget about that. Only appointed in December 1915. Hay's capacity for sustained hard work was tested to the limit, and you're going to be Brigadier General John Charteris of the GHQ BF. Well, I don't like Charteris, so he's getting a full blood knock. <laughs> 
At 8.30 precisely, Hague came into the mess for breakfast. He talked very little and generally confined himself to asking his personal staff what their plans were for the day. At 9 o'clock, he went into his study and worked until 11 or half past. At half past 11, he saw army commanders, the heads of departments at GHQ and others whom he might desire to see. At one o'clock, he had lunch which only lasted half an hour. Oh. <laughs> and then he either motored or rode to the headquarters of some army corps or division. Generally, when returning from those visits, he would arrange for his horse to meet the car so that he could travel the last three or four miles on horseback. When not motoring... On the return journey from his ride, he would stop about three miles from home and hand over his horse to a groom and walk back to headquarters. On arrival there, he would go straight up to his room, have a bath, do his physical exercises. That's the wrong way around, Gary. Have you noticed that? Would you do your physical exercises before or after your bath? Or During. During your bath, yes. <laughs> and then change into his slacks. From there until dinner time at eight o'clock, he would sit at his desk and work, but he was always available if any of his staff or guests wished to see him. He never objected to interruptions at this hour. At eight o'clock, he dined. After dinner, which lasted about an hour, he returned to his room and worked until quarter to 11. I thought you said you was going to do a strange voice. Yeah, I couldn't. I just used my own instead. <laughs> now, and so to bed. <laughs> now, this routine was very rarely broken. Uh, the visitors to Hayes headquarters were courteously treated, but some of them found his austere hospitality somewhat inhibiting. On one memorable visit, the Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, was driven almost to distraction, distraction by his puritanical host. And once more... We uh, take up the story with Brigadier General John Charteris. Yeah, it's worth bearing in mind that Asquith was, his nickname was Squiffy Asquith. Why do you think that might have been? Was it uh, something to do with his squeaky shoes? Uh, <laughs> that's squeaky Asquith. That's Squiffy. <laughs> it was his, uh, he was an alcoholic. <laughs> Douglas Haig has some excellent old brandy, which, however, he only sends round once at each meal. After that, it stands in solitary grandeur in front of him on the table. The Prime Minister obviously appreciated it very much and wished for more, but he did not feel that he could ask for another glass. His, his method of achieving his aim it's was, a pirate now. <laughs> was to move his glass a little nearer the bottle and then try and catch DH's eye and draw it down to the glass and then to the bottle. The glass advanced by stages as small as those of our attack until... Last of all, was resting against the bottle. Then, overcoming all of his scruples, the Prime Minister, with a sweep of the arm, seized the bottle and poured out a glass. Oh, I was sitting opposite, and the byplay was indescribably funny. D.H. did not notice it at all. When I told, told it to him afterwards, his comment was... If he has not enough determination to ask for a glass of brandy when he wants it, he should not be prime minister. Now, what do you what do you think of that? Who's I mean, 
I think this is a very revealing quote. Firstly, Charteris never seems to know what's going on. He thinks he does, but actually, Haig's the one who's spotted what's happening. If you can't ask for a... <laughs> I think that's a very apposite quote by Haig. If he can't ask for another glass of brandy, he shouldn't be Prime Minister. He's clearly not up to the job. What do you think? Can I just compliment you on your full range of accents? I only missed out on my Australian lunatic. (laughs) It was incredible. Now, the responsibility on uh, Hague's shoulders was truly immense. Hard working with a driving sense of duty, he was self-sufficient and he seemed on the surface to live only for the army. Although, in fact, he was also a devoted family man. Yeah, there's he? been a lot of research done into this by a chap called George Webster. Uh, and, and he's revealed what, 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 how, how much he was, A, besotted with his wife and B, cared for his children. He'd make sure they had Christmas presents and things like that. But he took a real interest in what, in their, what was happening to them. Now, I, also I, I, don't know, son. I don't know how he got on as a general because he was unfailingly polite and even tempered. <laughs> now, <laughs> that doesn't sound like any general we know. <laughs> he possessed a, an equable temperament that did not de- betray any trace of panic or temper, no matter how grim the state of affairs at I'm the I'm sorry, Jack, I don't believe it. I, <laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it, it, he's a sort of chap... He's not really interested in an expression of opinion, is it? It's not, that's not, it, it doesn't really, what does he want? Well, I mean, when He wants reasoned arguments based on facts, and, and he wants that before making any decision. He had a deep and abiding confidence in his own powers of judgment, and he would not revisit decisions already taken unless new evidence was brought before him. Now, we've both had experience on committees, and how many times do you sit in a committee and you revisit something, but there's nothing new? You just go retreading the argument. Is there any point of that? No, none at all. Not, not if the information's the same, the conclusion surely is going to be the I, same. I think the fact that, that Haig needs hard facts and, and then makes a solid decision that he won't revisit, is he won't chop and change his plans. No, and you shouldn't be surprised by that because, you know, he's committing his men to battle and, and he wouldn't arbitrarily chop and change his best laid plans uh, that he'd work hard on all day and all uh, night, every day in the, in the cause of his country, for which the men he commanded, let's face it, were, were being asked to risk their lives. Well, risk it and lose, yeah, definitely. Uh, now, he, he was working in tandem with someone, and, and that someone is another figure that we both like. Who was he working with? Who was the new Chief of Imperial General Staff? Uh, Imperial General Staff, yeah. I, I, I'm assuming you mean uh, General Sir William Robertson. Our hero. Willie. Willie, Willie, Willie yeah. Uh, they, now, what, what do these two men have in common? Well, they they were both, and, and we agree with this absolutely. Uh, Westerners, that's that's men who uh, made it their their business to discourage or stamp out all schemes which they considered diluted the war effort in the only place where it really mattered on the Western Front. Yeah, well, because to them and to us, it's self-evident Germany is the beating heart, Gary, the beating heart, as opposed to me who gets beaten. Um, uh, <laughs> of the, I mean, he that they they without. Without Germany, Austria-Hungary and Turkey, uh, Bulgaria as well when it comes to the war, there is nothing. They would collapse. And you couldn't defeat Germany uh, until her armies had been defeated in the field. And where would that have to be? It could have been on the Eastern Front by the Russians, but it wasn't. Where would it have to happen, really? Well, it had to happen on the Western Front. It, it, I mean, Haig succinctly summarised his policy in and you're his gonna, diary. You're going you're to be General Sir Douglas Haig at GHQ. 
The principles which we must apply are 1. Employ sufficient force to wear down the enemy and cause him to use up his reserves. 2. Then, and not till then, throw in a mass of troops, at some point where the enemy has shown himself to be weak, to break through and win victory. Now, th this isn't rocket science, is it? It's standard British Army Staff College uh, uh, thinking. But uh, it's not what actually happens, because the, 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 both Haig and Robertson, they, they, they see there's no easy option, no magical... I mean, politicians, what they always... Politicians, when you work for TFL, what do politicians always want? More. A magical route. But they just want a, an easy solution. They always go the easy way, don't they? Uh, but they're, they're, what, what do Hagen and Robertson have in common? Well, they're both, perhaps, unimaginative men. Uh, they were definitely ruthless when required. But above all, they're hard, practical men. And they, frankly, were entirely right. I think so, yeah. So, uh, now, uh, what, what's changed about the British Army? Uh, for, compared for when Sir John French took, uh, took command of the BEF in 1914, uh, what, what, what's happened by, by the end of 1915 when Haig takes over? Well, it's considerably increased uh, in stature with some 38 infantry divisions deployed on the Western Front by January 1916. As opposed to four, a couple of cavalry divisions and then two more reserve divisions arriving. For, yeah, with, so that's, that's nearly a million men, frankly, I think. By January 16. Yeah, yeah. that's a lot, isn't it? Um, and what else is there? I mean, it's not just the British. No, the uh, the peoples of the then Empire uh, had also put their shoulder to the wheel. Arr. You had Indians, Australians, New Zealanders and Canadians all flocking to the colours. And plans were afoot to send a further batch of uh, new army and territorial divisions to the front before the summer of 1916. Also plans to bring over some of the Gallipoli divisions. Uh, of course, Gallipoli had been finally evacuated in January of 1916. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 So uh, um, now... Uh, who do you think is looking on this with a somewhat jaundiced eye? Well, from a French perspective, <laughs> it was two years too late, but uh, the British had finally managed to mobilise a force commensurate in size with the inherent potential of the massive British Empire. Now, was Haig a master of his own destiny with this massive new force? No, I mean, as we covered off, <coughs> excuse me, in a previous uh, podcast, the Minister of War, Lord Kitchener, he'd specifically ordered him to cooperate with the French army as a united army, whilst at the same time maintaining his independence and command. I, I wonder if Kitchener's becoming a bit more political. <laughs> <laughs> and once more, I'm going to be General Sir Douglas Haig. I'm not under General Droffler's orders, but that would make no difference, as my intention was to do my utmost <clears throat> to carry out General Droffler's wishes on strategical matters, as if they were orders. Now, that's a very, very clear... Definition not, there. Not tactical. Strategic matters. Not tactical. He's not going to be told how he attains a village or something, he, but he's going to be told uh, the general big, the big themes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, who who is the dominant uh, force on the uh, on the Western Front? Well, uh, on the Allied side, it's the French, isn't it? Uh, how many? How, what what size are they by then? Well, they're they're some ninety five infantry divisions in early nineteen sixteen. That's 1916. bigger than thirty six. Yeah, and then when the six Belgian divisions were added into the equation, there's some hundred and thirty nine Allied divisions on the Western Front. Now, who who decided the overall strategy then? Who who is the man in? It's Joffre, isn't it? French Commander in Chief Joseph Joffre. Um, that, now, now, why is this a complicated situation? What what what's happened? What what? I mean, when had the plan been decided? Well, most of it had, had 
basically been agreed with Haig's predecessor, General Sir John French. <laughs> the Allies were trying to negate the central power's advantage of internal communications by launching a joint Anglo-French offensive on the Western Front in concert with simultaneous offences from Russia and Italy. So it's basically to, to pound the Germans from all sides. Uh, it's not subtle or sophisticated, but it's probably the best way. And where had Joffre... We, now, we covered all this in the planning for the Somme, so this is quick. Um, where, where did Joffre decide they should attack? Well, it's basically where the two armies uh, are joined, which is by the River Somme in Picardy in the summer of 1916. Um, while the French launched an attack south of the Somme, the British would attack north of the river. Now, Haig had no choice but to fall in with this. Uh, uh, the, 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 I mean, because that it, 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 it's, it's the French decision. Success on the Somme doesn't offer any st uh, strategic uh, objectives to anybody. Uh, you can go 50, 60 miles in either direction. Uh, um, but where did Haig favour an well, offensive? Well, Haig favoured uh, an offensive in Flanders, and in fact, later in the year. Um, but in the end... He's willing to fall in line with Joffre's plan for the sake of the alliance. Yeah, uh, I mean, at uh, Flanders, there are strategic uh, objectives, but not. Uh, he doesn't have a choice. Um, now, um, is there somebody else involved in deciding what would happen on the Western Front? So there's Haig and there's Joffre. Who else? Who else is responsible? Well, and and in a lot of books, you wouldn't know this, would you? <laughs> yeah, well, the Germans, they are there too. Germans. And they're more than capable of making and carrying out their own plans. General Eric von Falkenheim, uh, the chief of the general staff, had a somewhat pessimistic view of the overall German strategic position. Oh, I think he's... Uh, and we think he's right, by the way. We thought that after the Battle of the Marne in 1914, ultimately the Germans are pretty well buggered, to yeah. use a very technical term. Uh, yeah. uh, he develops a plan for a new offensive against the French, which was designed to capitalise on the, listen to this figure, 1,430,000 casualties already inflicted on the French You're nation. Trying to, trying to knock them out of the war. Yeah. Now, he launches a stunning assault on the fortress of Verdun on the 21st of February 1916. Yeah, well, that's it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, something close to the French heart. They ca they will do almost anything to keep it, and and it develops into uh, an enormous uh, attritional battle. And and the French can no longer play the major part, uh, although they can play an important part in the Battle of the Somme. Um, and 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 gradually, Joffre comes to see the Somme as a way of relieving pressure on Verdun, rather than uh, rather than this grand strategic vision of defeating the Germans. Um, well, now, we, we covered the French contribution on the Somme with a, a podcast. Do you remember that one? It, uh, yeah, it was uh, with Dave uh, O'Malley, and it showed the French contribution was still important and effective. More, more effective in some ways than the British. Yeah, so and in indeed, the they days. suffered something like 200,000 casualties, I think. Now, what was uh, Haig's approach in sixteen? Well, he, he was very cautious because, in his opinion, the, the, his men were by no means adequately trained for the shock of battle. Um, and, he, and he puts it rather bluntly, Pete. And once more, I'm going to be General Sir Douglas Haig. I have not got an army in France, really, but a collection of divisions untrained for the field. The actual fighting army will be evolved from them. Now, this is very interesting because the, 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 I think, he's, again, he's right. Um, they they just did, hadn't had chance. I mean, some of them had battle experience, but they had not got offensive battle skill. They, you know, uh, 
But the French, they're desperate, aren't they? And Joff wants urgent British action. And and by the way, the clock's been ticking for them for two years with the British getting their asses in gear. Um, so what are Haig's real intentions uh, in launching the Battle of the Somme? Um, he hoped to achieve victory in 1916. Of course he did. But um, he's aware that it might not be possible. And you're again going to be uh, Douglas Haig. My policy is briefly two. One. Train my divisions and collect as much ammunition and as many guns as possible. Two, to make arrangements to support the French attacking in order to draw off pressure from Verdun when the French consider the military situation demands it. But, while attacking to help our allies, not to think that we can for a certainty destroy the power of Germany this year. So in our attacks, we must also aim at improving our positions with a view to making sure of the results of the campaign next year. That's 1917. So this is, I think this is a reasoned position. Uh, the British... Uh, and another thing to have forgotten is people go on about Waterloo. That's not a British army. That's an Allied army. This is the first time the British are going to fight a real continental battle in modern war against the main enemy, the Germans, on the on on the decisive front, the Western Front. Um, now, uh, have we uh, have we mentioned the Somme in any of our previous uh, podcasts, Gary? Yeah, we dealt with much of the Somme battles uh, in in a series of podcasts, which you can listen on Pete and Gary's military history. Uh, so we'll just examine some key themes. What, Haig and some key themes? What, yeah. what, what's first then? Well, Haig was not responsible for the tactics employed, although he did make suggestions. For example, Haig favoured the hurricane bombardment. Ah, Ah, as at Neuve Chapelle, when he was First Army Commander. Now, that wasn't really feasible, given the number of guns and ammunition it would require. Well, well because, the, because the, of the width of the front, you mean? Yeah. Now, as the wire had to be cut, with the only means of doing so being shrapnel shells, then a preliminary bombardment of some seven days was required. So, in essence, because later in the war, they have 106 instant, they can use high explosive and instant detonation views, but that's not been invented or not been produced then. Uh, oh, and now there's another theme that we want to look at in in the Somme battles. Uh, uh, what, 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 did, what did Haig want? He wanted to maximise the potential advance or gains in any major attack um, and in doing so he sort of calls for an attack on the German second line system and I want to make this clear not the second line the second line system there are two no or three systems uh, on the Somme uh, as well as the first and this is a repeated frame but it's particularly noticeable because of what happens on the 1st of July and you're going to be Haig e explaining how he reacted to Rawlinson's plans I studied Sir Henry Rawlinson's proposals for attack. His intention is merely to take the enemy's first and second system of trenches and kill Germans. He looks upon the gaining of three or four kilometres more or less of ground immaterial. I think we can do better than this by aiming at getting as large a combined force of French and British across the Somme and fighting the enemy in the open. Hmm. Now, uh, Haig is a contingency plan, and one thing that people miss is that in his plans, he's always looking at a variety of options as to what happens. Uh, he was a staff officer par excellence. Um, he, he always fears that caution means missed opportunities if the German front line uh, shows any signs of collapse at any point. Um, 
but he's not for bite and hold. Now, what is bite and hold? You can just briefly explain that for us. Um, well, it's exactly what it says. It's taking a bite out of uh, uh, the, the German line, holding it, because what do the Germans always do? Counterattack. So you need uh, your artillery to and do that. So, and it's limited objectives. So what Haig's proposing is, is an attempt, that, uh, an outright breakthrough. He'd been seduced, I think, Pete, by the, oh, uh, oh, oh, oh. the the potential of massed artillery as demonstrated at least in part by the early German operations at Verdun. Uh, there's, there's something else. Is, uh, I think because you know we're, we're, we're Hagista, as they sometimes call but I think Haig was wrong. Uh, I do think at the time of the war that it was, that Bidenhold was the answer in 1916. Not the answer in the war, that's uh, the All-Arms Battle of 1918, which was impossible in 1916. And as we've said, we've said it on a number of occasions, if you include the second line system as an, object- as an objective, uh, you've got to include that in the prior bombardments. And unless the amount of artillery is increased... Which it wasn't. It's plain that every shell you fire into the German second line trenches and the wire that would bar their way was one less fired at the German first line, which after all, has to be overcome before the advancing troops can make any progress at all. So in a sense, in trying to do too much, you risk doing nothing at all. Now, what if they broke through? Now, this this is a re- another theme. Uh, Haig always has his eye on uh, using cavalry. Uh, uh, and, and But this is, again, contingency planning. Uh, also, the one thing to remember is it's his only mobile exploitation force. There was nothing else. And even when tanks are invented, which they are, during the Somme battle. 15th of September, 1916. Well done, Gary. Thank you. Uh, that wasn't when they were invented, that was first no, use. that's the first use at Fleurs. <laughs> so, so he can't use anything else, is the point that we're trying nobly to make. Yeah, we are trying to make that point, nobly. And you're going to be Hager and, and just say, uh, he explains about cavalry. He says this. I told him to impress on his corps commanders the use of their corps cavalry and mounted troops, and if necessary, supplement them with regular cavalry units. In my opinion, it is better to prepare to advance beyond the enemy's last line of trenches, because we are then in a position to take advantage of any breakdown in the enemy's defence, whereas if there is a stubborn resistance put up, the matter settles itself. On the other hand, if no preparations for an advance are made till the next morning, we might lose a golden opportunity. Contingency planning. And you recognise that from your own uh, 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 career. Contingency planning is important. You can't just have... I was going to say marriage. Yes, you've always had a contingency. (laughs) Divorce. Living alone in misery. (laughs) With Fred. Yes. (laughs) Um, Now... um, the one other thing, I mean, Haig, what, 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 what is something that is important to Haig, although he's given very little credit to it, because, of course, he appoints other people to do it. What is Haig interested in? Well, he, he, he's urging the necessity to accelerate the training of the divisions under his command. It's a matter of increasing importance. Why? Why, Gary? Well, the British Army began to realise the seriousness of sending in half-trained infantry against experienced German units occupying superbly fortified defensive positions. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh at that. But that's just so obvious. Yeah. Well, a lot of things are obvious, but you have to. It's it's a matter of grip. You have to make the time to have the training, which means it, it, it's not as easy as it says. And and does this become of more or less importance? No, it becomes an ever increasing importance to the BEF. from sixteen onwards through to eighteen. Yeah. And you've got to also, finally, um, Let's reiterate it, because it's important. I know what you're going to say. We're going to reiterate the overall point. 
Yeah, it's it's important to understand the infantry tactics were not based on Haig's orders. These were tactics under the control of army, corps and divisional commanders. Now, however, tactically, I think there's one huge make mistake Haig makes. Now, this is a matter of opinion, and that's all it is. And, and I know that different historians have taken different viewpoints of this, although some of the lesser ones haven't even considered it. Uh, but the likes of Jack Sheldon have really brought this to our attention. Uh, let, let's go through it. Um, so, so, so uh, the f- end of the first day, they've gained ground in the south, Gary, remember? Yeah. And they've done well. And the French have done really well. Um, but um, in the south, the really significant ridge, uh, the Byzantine Ridge, is still guarded by the German second line system. But what happens in the north, Gary? Well, in the north, the assault on the uh, the key Schwerpunkt. Schwerpunkt? Of Thietvalspur. What's a Schwerpunkt? And Bussier's Ridge had utterly failed. What's it's a Schwer- strong It's a strong point, the Schwerpunkt. It's the key point. Uh, and this is Jack Sheldon's point, isn't it? The, 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 it's the most important tactically point on the battlefield. And it is defended, as you rightly say, by a strong point. In, in this case, the Schwab and Redoubt and the rest of it. Um, so that had that succeeded? No. What did you say? It utterly failed. Now, success there would have provided vital observation over large sectors of the German defensive system. Would that have destabilised them a bit? Absolutely. It had destabilised the whole German line in the Somme sector. They failed where it mattered. In the north? And succeeded where it was all but tactically irrelevant. In the south. Yes. Oh, dear. Now, the, the, this leads to a, there's a quandary here. So there's two ways. You renew the attack in the south and capitalise on success. But what does that mean? Well, you're still going to have to capture Thietval and Pozier at some point uh, before you could make any sort of rapid advance. Now, but the... But attacking Tiepfel and Pozier's, what did that mean? What might you incur if you attack them again? Well, you're going you're gonna to suffer huge losses, aren't you? Uh, you'd already suffered uh, a, a, a scale of losses that, that was difficult to, to understand and believe. Uh, but it called to mind the wisdom of hitting the heads against the brick wall as a means of progress. So it's it's difficult. Now, who, now there's two... There's, there's, this is controversial. And even at the time, there were different approaches. What did Rawlinson... Uh, the, well, what, General Sir Henry Rawlinson, to give him his Sunday name, was inclined to grasp the ball by the horns and to batter down the continued resistance in the north before turning to exploit the success game in the south and you're going to be General Sir Henry Rawlison of the HQ 4th Army A large part of the German reserve have now been drawn in and it is essential to keep up the pressure and wear out the defence It is also necessary to secure as early as possible all important tactical points still in the possession of the Germans in their front line system an intermediate line with a view to an ultimate attack on the German second line Oh, So a balance of probability there is that he'd, he'd, he'd prefer to have another go at the really tactically significant points in the north. Yeah, I mean, he, he felt they'd have to catch up, as it were, by taking their original objectives along. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Lafitte, Valspur and Poziers Ridge before the next real assault designed to penetrate the German second line. Second line system, yeah, that's right. All along the original front. Yeah. Now, Haig takes an alternative tactical approach. Uh, uh, what does he want to do? Well, he wants to push ahead in the south alongside the French to build on success that's already been achieved. However, this infuriates the Why French. Why would that infuriate the French? Well, uh, you're going to find it, there's a meeting between Joff and Haig on the 3rd of July. And there's a famous quote, which you're going to, uh, you're going to be Sir Douglas Haig. And I think this is Haig's greatest mistake. And, and, and funnily enough, it's a rare moment when Haig is quite arrogant about it. Um, and he, I think Haig's wrong. Joffre began by pointing out the importance of our getting Thibval Hill. To this, I said that in view of the progress made on my right, near Montalban, and the demoralised nature of the enemy's troops in that area, I was considering the desirability of pressing my attack on Longueval. I was therefore anxious to know whether in that event the French would attack Goulemont. At this, General Joffre exploded in a fit of rage. He could not approve it. He ordered me to attack Thibval and Poziers. If I attacked Longueval, I would be beaten, etc., etc. I waited calmly till he had finished. His breast heaved and his face flushed. The truth is, the poor man cannot argue, nor can he easily read a map. Oh dear, oh dear. Now, this is not Haig's greatest hour. Um, Joff is saying, you've got to capture the Thiepval, Spur and Poziers Ridge. And it doesn't matter what extra casualties you get. Um... He's also deeply suspicious of the British. Why? Why? Well, he thinks that in switching the balance of the attack to the south, he, he feared the French army might, might once again end up bearing the brunt of the fight. Well, Haig wants them to attack Guillemot, doesn't he? And so he's wanting a bigger contribution from the French. Um, it's not going to help with the Verdun if the French are going to be drawn deeper no, and deeper. No, absolutely. It doesn't. It, it, doesn't, it negates the, the, any advantage that they, the, they receive at Verdun. 
Now, Haig, eventually, he braves Joff's wrath. Uh, he, he, he's, he, he will accept strategic control in a joint allied, allied cause, but he will not accept tactical interference. Uh, and Rawlinson, what happens to Rawlinson? Well, he's also overruled. Well, of course he is, because he's only a general. Uh, not, you know. So uh, they would attack in the south uh, with the intention of securing good positions from which you can make a big thrust to break through the German second-line system on the Byzantin Le, 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 Le Petit Ridge, which is what they do on the 14th of uh, July. Um, now, the trouble is that Haig's wrong, because where was the Schwerpunkt? Well, the Schwerpunkt was, as you mentioned earlier, the uh, Schwaben Redoubt and Jack... Jack Sheldon uh, would say so. The naughty Germans would say so. And even you would say so. I would. And I didn't understand this when I wrote my book, uh, but that was in 2006. Historians do learn, and people like Jack Sheldon have taught us. And, and the sure punk was that. It was. The, 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 the ground there uh, was crucial. And what happened when we eventually take it? Well, one, the ground's taken later in the campaign and the German line was indeed destabilised. Perversely, many normally critical commentators have praised Haig for this stance. Yeah, the idea being that he would... That it's often been seen that Haig would... And I must admit, I did used to think that Haig was right because he was ca- capitalising on success rather than banging his head against a brick wall. Uh, it's really interesting... I do not find it fascinating that, that this isn't a clear-cut issue, is it? No, and it would have been even less so on the ground in 1916. So uh, a mistake by Haig, I think, another mistake. So uh, I, I think his not using bite and hold on the first day was a mistake. And then I think this is a bigger mistake in some ways. Um now, there's a second... I'm sorry. You see, this is the point. You can admire Haig, but point to uh, things that go wrong. What what else uh, would you say is a, a little bit awry with Haig's performance during the battle? Well, it's the lack of grip by Haig and Rawlinson during the battle. Both of them? Yeah, both of them. So Haig doesn't grip Rawlinson, and Rawlinson doesn't grip his... his no, uh, once the responsibility has been devolved down to the corps and divisional commanders, each went their own way in planning the actions in the area for which they're responsible, and that's not right. No, and, and what happens is you get attacks are planned in isolation, and corps attacks get devolved down to divisions, and they, they, they assign it to a brigade who say, uh, uh, all right, well, <laughs> the 15th sausages can do it and 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 you get a single battalion attack and sometimes it, it devolves right down to just a company and it's meant to have been a big attack and it ends up just being a battalion walking into no man's land and what happens to them well they, they they're, they're truly futile aren't they and there's there's no sense of coherence or guiding hand and and it's it's never going to succeed. It's just impossible. The, the, there's no sense of a guiding hand going on. I mean, the bigger themes are, yeah, you've got to take up these local objectives before we can make the bigger attack on the German second line system, but it doesn't come through. There's no coordination. And what's Haig doing? He's lecturing Rawlinson, but... Is, yeah, is but the, the doomed attacks carry on anyway. So Haig isn't gripping Rawlinson, and Rawlinson isn't gripping his corps and divisional commanders. So they're doomed to failure. Yeah. Uh, another theme, another theme, and this is uh, common to the army in most times. So, uh, what would you say uh, is common to most generals uh, in 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 the First World War or any war? Well, it's the backstabbing bastards <gasps> in London, Gary! or politicians, as they're otherwise known. Well, I'm absolutely appalled at that, but it's true, isn't it? It is. By the end of July, the politicians in London are becoming increasingly edgy as to the lack of visible progress on the ground on the Somme. 
Well, from they from their perspective, uh, let's just be for a moment fair to them before we stab them ourselves. They 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 they, they see the enormous sacrifices that the empire is making, uh, uh, and they they want some clear, visible results, uh, other than just a, it's a bit intangible. Saying, "Well, we've relieved pressure on Verdun." Is that you know? Um, who would you imagine was one of the most uh, vigorous and uh, and uh, loudest critics? Um, Oh, the word you might be struggling for, Pete, there is trenchant critics. I was avoiding that word. Oh, well, that's Winston Churchill. He he returned to his parliamentary duties after his brief period oh, of service yes, on the Western Front. period of uh, that we always have to worship when he was briefly in command of a battalion and the quietest sector of the British Front. Yes. Which was his penance for the Gallipoli debacle. What a penance. That he and others had initiated. Yeah. Well, he wasn't alone in there, yeah. So uh, so what's he doing now? Well, he argued, Churchill, that is, argued his case in a confidential memorandum which was circulated to the War Cabinet. Having stressed the serious nature of the British casualties and the failure to gain ground, he bluntly questioned the purpose of continuing the offensive. And, rather amusingly, you're going to be Winston Churchill MP. I can't do a Churchill voice, I'll just use me. The month that has passed has enabled the enemy to make whatever preparations behind his original lines he may think necessary. He could quite easily by now have converted the whole countryside in front of our attack into successive lines of defence and fortified posts. What should we have done in the same time, in similar circumstances? Anything he has left undone in this respect is due only to his confidence. A very powerful, hostile artillery has now been assembled against us, and this will greatly aggravate the difficulties of further advance. Nor are we making for any point of strategic or political consequence. He's right there about the, the Somme. That, I'm not denying that. Uh, he goes on, Verdun at least would be a trophy to which sentiment on both sides has become mistakenly attached. But what are Peron and Bapon, even if we are likely to take them. Well, the ultimate result of the Somme, I would remind you, is although they're not taken in the fighting, the destabilisation of the German line means they withdraw way past it in February, March 1917. So how does Haig defend himself? Well, he <laughs> Haig vehemently defends uh, the uh, achievements on the Somme offences so far in a note to the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, Sir William Robertson. And this, in turn, is later printed as a cabinet paper to refute Churchill's arguments. And you're going to be uh, Sir Douglas Haig, and you're going to go through some of his reasoning. A. Pressure on Verdun relieved. Not less than six enemy divisions besides heavy guns have been withdrawn. B. Successes achieved by Russia last month would certainly have been stopped had enemy been free to transfer troops from here to the Eastern Theatre. C. Proof given to the world that allies are capable of making and maintaining a vigorous offensive and of driving enemies' best troops from the strongest positions has shaken faith of Germans, of their friends, of doubting neutrals in the invincibility of Germany. D. We have inflicted very heavy losses on the enemy. In one month, 30 of his divisions have been used up as against 35 at Verdun in five months. In another six weeks, the enemy should be hard put to find men. The maintenance of a steady offensive this pressure... This is E. This is E. E. The maintenance <laughs> of a steady offensive pressure will result eventually in his complete overthrow. 
I suspect to be able to maintain the offensive well into the autumn. It would not be justifiable to calculate on the enemy's resistance being completely broken without another campaign next year. Well, I think that's quite reasoned uh, arguments. Uh, I mean, some of it is special pleading, uh, but you know, uh, he then. But I like the next bit because he also follows it up with a bit of a personal dig at Churchill, and I think that this is uh, uh, this is what makes me suspect that, that he wasn't quite as even-tempered and not uh, bad, you know, not general-like. Uh, you're going to be Hague. What, what does he say as? We must not allow them to divert our thoughts from our main objective, namely beating the Germans. I also expect that Winston's head is gone from taking drugs. Does he mean aspirin? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, now, uh, the, 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 during the song, what, what we, and we've referred to this in our podcast, but we, we, it's such a major theme, we've got to, uh, got to refer to it again. What is one of the great problems of the, of the, the, the campaign that, that becomes more and more evident? Well, careful preparations are two-edged sword. Time to prepare for an assault was also time for the Germans to repair and prepare their defences. Time to bring up fresh divisions and more gun batteries to duel with the British artillery for the control of the battlefield. It's, a lot of it's about the guns, isn't it? Yeah, but if you if if to attack without proper preparation would simply guarantee defeat, as had happened time and time before. Uh, yeah, that's so. So, so how? I mean. <laughs> Yes, well, I can see a problem here. So if you don't attack straight away, the, the enemy gets stronger. And if you do attack straight away, you're, you're not prepared. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I can't see a way through that. Um, so so what, 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 what's the concept that results? Well, the concept that's, that's introduced is the, the wearing out battle. That's a, a fairly classical military tactical philosophy, which considered that most battles resolved themselves into a fight to wear down the frontline troops and reserves of the enemy, whilst reserving a strike force to be launched into decisive action at the critical moment of the battle. So I'd say like Waterloo, that had been a matter of hours, five or six hours. Yeah, exactly. It, it, and, and, but given the strength of the armies involved on the Somme and the sheer scale of the fighting, it now seemed that that phase would last for weeks. Or months. Yeah, possibly. Now, that's an awful prospect, but Haig had the dare determination to see the job through. So that, that's a, a plus sign because Haig does have the, the determination to, to do it. I mean, he just doesn't give up, does he? Now, um, in some ways, the Battle of the Somme, as you know, climaxes at which battle, Gary? Well, it's the Battle of Fleurs, Corselet. On the when 15th, was that, Gary? 15th of September 1916. Now, um, uh, and 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 uh, you, you've got another quote from 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 Haig, who's looking at the situation uh, around about this time. Um, it's quite a long quote, but I think again it, it reveals what Haig's thinking as the fighting goes on in sixteen. During the two months that the Battle of the Somme has lasted, the enemy has suffered repeated defeats and heavy losses, and has undergone many hardships. All this has undoubtedly told on his discipline and morale, and signs of deterioration in his troops are not wanting. The general offensive on all his fronts, which will be continued, has placed a great and prolonged strain on his power of resistance, which strain will now be increased by the entry of Romania into the war. The reserves at the enemy's disposal to meet a renewed attack are very limited and consist mainly of tired troops which have already suffered severely. Moreover, it is not unlikely that he will be compelled to transfer some of his reserves to his eastern front. 
The combined attacks to be launched by the French and British troops during the first week of September and the counterattacks by the enemy that are likely to result will weaken him further and wear down the divisions now posed to us. On our side, several fresh divisions are still available to be thrown into the scale after these combined attacks have been carried out. We shall also have a new weapon of offence, some 50 tanks, which, coming as a surprise to the enemy, are likely to be of considerable moral and material assistance to us. In short, we are approaching a stage in the battle when bold and energetic action may give great, perhaps decisive, results, provided the requisite preparations are made in time and all ranks put forth their utmost efforts. Now, this is uh, this is uh, this is the September view, uh, and the September the the battles are quite uh, quite dramatic, and and and, uh, and the British Army is learning. Not, not it's not exactly the all arms battle at all, but it's but they are making progress. But in the end, what's the essential theme of Flair's Corselet, the battles that follow in in September and early October? What is what do the Germans do? Well, the Germans, it, it's not contrary to Haig and the hammer blows of previous months, it, it, they seem to be bearing fruit at last. I have no idea what you're asking me. Well, they hold on. Oh, I see. Sorry. So, yeah, but why do they hold on? You know, the, the tanks were useful. Not, but nothing not more, but nothing decisive. More. Who's the father of the tank corps? Oh, we've said this previously. We think it's Haig. Don't Why? We? They don't, the tank corps, but they're an Well, he's the first to see such. the potential, and, and he orders a thousand, uh, a, a, you know, without knowing whether or not they were going to be successful. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they are useful. Now, so it's moving deeper and deeper into autumn. Uh, they're not going to abandon the offensive because Haig, what, what Haig thinks that. that, that it, they, well, they, he thinks that the. The the attacks are seeming to, to bear fruit at last. There's some indication that the German resistance could win. Now, this is that idiot Charteris. A lot of this is dodgy intelligence, which Charteris continually feeds to Haig. Yeah, I mean, he's suggesting there's a, a, a tantalising possibility that the uh, Germans might at long last be on the very verge of collapse. Now, this is interesting because, of course, at uh, Haig... If you'd have asked me that, I'd have been able to answer. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Uh, if uh, if Haig... If, I mean, well, I'll ask you something else you won't know the answer to. When had Haig been in a defensive battle that uh, where, where it seemed as if the Germans would break through if they'd only attacked one more day or two more days? I don't know. First Eeps. Do you remember when it, it was so... Haig did very, very well. And the Germans seemed as if they were going to break through. And Haig always thought if they'd just attacked a bit more, they would have broken through. Although we know that the French were coming to the British rescue. So that's... Haig always thinks that one more blow, just one more blow will go through, doesn't he? Anyway, um, so uh, so what does Haig say about this sort of feeling? We'd already broken through all the enemy's prepared lines and that now only extemporised defences stood between us. Ooh. I looked it up, Pete. What does it uh, mean, Gary? It means compose or perform without preparation. Ooh. Haig goes on to say... Uh, only extemporised defences stood between us and the Belpalm Ridge. Moreover, the enemy had suffered much in men, in material and in morale. If we rested even for a month, the enemy would be able to strengthen his defences, to recover his equilibrium, to make 
good deficiencies, and worse still, would regain the initiative. The longer we rested, the more difficult would be our problem again become. So in my opinion, we must continue to press the enemy to the utmost of our power. But the Germans did hold on. And what else happens in, on the Somme in October and November? What, what could happen any October and November, do you think? And there's no clue in front of you. There's no point looking. Well, you mean the weather? Yeah. Yeah, the, the weather starts to deteriorate quite quickly. And that makes artillery less ex- difficult and it's harder to bring up the shells, the logistics deteriorate, everything goes wrong. So um, so what? What's, so by the beginning of November, what do you think the general mood is in the British Army? Well, gradually, the priorities of the British High Command had changed as winter approached. Their thoughts turned to the necessity of securing the best po- possible positions for the winter lines, hence the Battle of the Ankh. For example, which we've just done a podcast of that on the thirteenth of November. Yeah, and and I think it was a very recent podcast. It was it seems very recent to me. Now, he he's worried by the uh, ever deteriorating ground condition, and he orders that General Sir Hubert Goff's Fifth Army attack should not be launched until the ground conditions were dry enough to let the infantry advance with relative freedom of movement, and thereby, of course, enable them to keep pace with the all important creeping barrage. And and uh, yeah, and he, uh, yeah, they've got to have uh, good weather forecast for at least two days following the assault. And this is what that uh, this is when you get the the Battle of the Onk. That's where it takes ages for that to 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 to, uh, to now, result. The end result was a, a relative success, and the it battle was, yeah. it closed down for the British uh, with the French following as we said in our podcast about a month later yeah they carry on fighting the Somme is not a British battle it's an Anglo-French battle uh, now what are the Germans uh, I mean I think they'd survive by the skin of the teeth because it isn't just the Somme for them it's also Verdun which is a terrific battle and uh, they've got a bit of a gloomy future haven't they um, yeah I mean they're looking forward to, to what they see to be inevitable defeat and you're going to be General Eric Ludendorff of the German HQ yeah he's the new uh, chief of staff because uh, uh, Falkenhayn had, had gone uh, he, the, the Verdun had done for him and the Somme uh, and I, I'm going to say this uh, GHQ had to bear in mind that the, the enemy's great superiority in men and material would be even more painfully felt in 1917 than in 1916. They had to face the danger that Somme fighting would soon break out at various points on our fronts and that even our troops would not be able to withstand such attacks indefinitely, especially if the enemy gave us no time for rest and the accumulation of material. Our position was uncommonly difficult and a way out hard to find. We could not contemplate uh, an offensive ourselves, having to keep our reserves available for defence. There was no hope of a collapse of any of the Entente powers. If the war lasted, our defeat seemed inevitable. Economically, we were in a highly unfavourable position for a war of exhaustion. At home, our strength was badly shaken. Questions of the supply of foodstuffs caused great anxiety, and so too did questions of morale. We were not undermining the spirits of the enemy populations with their starvation blockades and propaganda. The future looked dark. Well, it did. So, in a sense, Haig was right in his idea that uh, the Germans were approaching. Ex- well, they were. They were. They were getting near their the limits. But uh, th- there were signs of deterioration. But 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 he was also wrong. Why was he also wrong? Well, he's wrong about uh, the. The, uh, the, uh, the Germans' ability as, as a mighty nation to withstand hardship and loss. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the German state is it's a, the, the biggest, it's probably one of the best economies in the world. The army is huge and, 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 and probably the best army in the world. They're, they're not going to fall over. But in uh, that quote, I find it really interesting that he's, he's, he's naming Somme fighting. It's, it's now becoming a description of a type of fighting. I think you're right, and 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 it is almost the obvious. Uh, it's worth remembering that he writes this stuff after the war, uh, and and as often. So it's you know you you've got to realise there's some special. He also had an agenda, of course, at he, that time. He did. He was a, a funny bloke, wasn't it? Well, it's not funny. There's nothing funny about it. Now, um, the whole thing about the the Somme is that it's not about the stupidity of individuals, really. It's uh, uh it. <laughs> It's almost the inevitable result when nation states, uh, the great Western powers, start fighting each other, resolve their problems through war. And it's worth remembering with the active encouragement with most of the civilian population. Uh, so what does war demand between the nation states? Well, they, it demands that they strain every sinew to defeat each other. War meant the mobilisation of all their men and resources. The very power of the European nation states meant that the, the, the numbers of our men and the powers of destruction they wielded exceeded anything that had been dreamed of in their worst nightmares. So there had never been anything like this before, have No, they? you mentioned Waterloo earlier. The, the scale of losses, when you compare the two, which are roughly 100 years apart, are incredible. And, and as soldiers struck down their enemies, this is in 1916, more appeared springing forward from the schools. The railheads are just... Heads, the, yeah. the rail, uh, it's worth mentioning, you used to like mentioning the railways, you've forgotten to recently, I don't know why, uh, probably you're getting far... Well, it was the logistics of the time. How did you get everything to that front? And the railways played a massive part, as did the railway timetable. And they're just funneling more divisions to the front quickly and efficiently. Yeah, killing a few thousand men, it barely dents the manpower resources of the modern industrial state. Millions would be killed, maimed and mentally crippled before one side or the other was so worn down that they, they couldn't, couldn't struggle go on. on anymore. They just couldn't go on. Um, in one word sense, the Battle of the Somme, it shows that tactical objectives, uh, which is all we've said there were in the Somme area, uh, in, in contrast to the, the Flanders where Haig wanted to attack, uh, where there are strategic objectives, tactical, I mean, in, so ground, tactical objectives don't matter at all. Well, what the only objective matter? that really mattered was the long-term destruction of the German army. So what happens when the Germans want to avoid more Somme fighting? Uh, Ludendorff's now in control. Well, Hindenburg is uh, the figurehead. But uh, so, so what do they do? Well, as you mentioned earlier, they voluntarily withdraw to the new Hindenburg lines, which are some miles beyond Bhopal in the spring of 1917. It's not a coincidence, is it? It's not some whim either. Uh, they, they, they're shortening their line, which means that they've got more troops per mile of line. Uh, and, and, and what are they also avoiding? Well, they're, they're, they're avoiding any imminent renewal of the British and French pressure on the Somme from a, a tactical position, position of their own choosing. Uh, you know, the, the, the Which is, by the way, what the French and, well, French fundamentally plan and the British for uh, 1917. Absolutely. Now, um, when, when we look at the Somme, um, um, people are so shocked by it. But, but why is it different from the Second World War? Well, during the Second World War, it, it looks as if the British had evaded the brunt of the massive casualties, which would rendered inevitable by modern continental war yet the butcher's bill still got to who be paid who pays it then well it's uh, 
by that time, it's the soldiers of the Soviet Union who died in their millions to slowly grind down the forces and will of the German Third Reich over four long years. So it's not our brave lads then. Our, our brave lads and the Americans play a part and the bombing and all the rest. But the fundamental reality is... It, in the numbers that you associate with the slaughter of the Western Front, it's the Russians. Now, um, and what happens when the British... Uh, I mean, we all we all have this thing that Br- British generals are better in the Second World War. I don't think they are. I think British, British generalships better in the First World War. But what happens when British troops attack the Germans in prepared positions in the Second World War? Well, they they still suffer uh, serious casualties. You talking Normandy here? Are we yeah, talking- yeah. Normandy's a great example. There's no back door. There's no painless route back to success. In war, someone always seems to have to suffer. Yeah, I think whether it be the Russians or, or, or yeah. Um, now, how well did Haig perform on the Somme in 1916? Um, well, you know, we started by saying much of the responsibility for the Allied strategy, which was adopted in 1916, wasn't his. That's um, French. And, it was uh, French. Joff. And, yeah, and, uh, and he was determined the shape of the Allied strategy in 1916. He did. He, he be, did, yeah, yeah, sorry. But yes, the broad thrust of Hague's Western Front and attritional strategy in 1916 was probably correct. Mm, yeah, um, I mean, we, I think we've gone through the, some of the mistakes we feel he made. And let's, let's I mean, we're armchair commentators We've here. also gone through some mistakes I've made. Uh, and some mistakes that I've made, Gary, uh, which are legion, our people often say, particularly but my as we say... He was new in the job. Yes, this is a point people forget. He was new in the job. He'd been a lieutenant general in charge uh, uh, in charge of a, a corps in 1914, and he was now in charge of five armies by the end of the Somme. Uh, that's which was uh, a larger force uh, than than any British commander. Uh, before or indeed during the Second and World War. And he was War. at four, four armies at the start of the sub. Fifth Army came and, uh, during it. I mean, this is this is a huge step forward, isn't it? Um, but you, you've also got to think about, and we touched on it, the rawness of the British divisions. They were all new, essentially, weren't they? Yeah, the, the type uh, and a and, and number of the weapon systems which were available in 1916. So there was development in that that were to come to leave the all-arms battle. Uh, there's one other thing uh, that we always got to remember why the British and French, in the end, failed on the Somme. Who's that? Well, it's the nature of the Germans in defence. Um, it, it probably meant that failure was inevitable. In, in 1916. That, yeah, in 1916. Yeah, I'd say, but, you know, the British army is learning, uh, but there's a, a, a bit of a fall back to that who else is learning the Germans bugger (laughs) (laughs) now if you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope you have then do think of uh, buying us a coffee but I can't remember how you do that Uh, well we'll put we'll put a link up uh, when we advertise the podcast oh yeah it would be helpful uh, because we both like coffee and in fact I'm going to go and put it on hooray cheers Cheers, Gary Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it